Welcome to Follow the Buzz, where we highlight innovative ideas and practices in early education that are being implemented throughout California school districts. Hello and welcome to Follow the Buzz. My name is Roberta Gonzalez, Dial EE Fellow and Director of Early Learning in El Rancho Unified School District in Los Angeles County. I have the distinct privilege of being joined today by pioneering early education researcher, Dr. Stephen Barnett. Dr. Barnett is a Board of Governors Professor and Senior Co-Director of the National Institute for Early Education Research at Rutgers University. His research includes studies of the economics of early care and education and the long-term effects of preschool programs on children's learning and development. Dr. Barnett, thank you so very much for being here with us today to discuss California's Universal Transitional Kindergarten Initiative. Thank you for inviting me, Roberta. And so Dr. Barnett, to get started, you know, given the work that you've spearheaded at NEAR, including the annual state preschool yearbook that examines the status of preschool across the United States, what general guidance can you offer California as we prepare to implement universal TK for all four-year-old children? I think the first point of advice, and it's hard when you have such an exciting opportunity, is to change slow and learn fast. And maybe I should put it the other way around, learn fast and change <laughs> slow. Uh, and when you think about how to learn, I think the first place to learn is from yourselves. Mm -hmm. So learning from the California State Preschool Program and from TK both, what, what would be the best of both worlds if you brought them together? What, what can you learn from what California has done in the past uh, to take the strongest elements of your past programs and combine them into one that's even better than, than what you've been doing? Um, second is you can learn from other states. Um, so there are states that have programs with evidence of strong effectiveness. My state of New Jersey is one of them. Uh, North Carolina, Michigan, or a couple of other states. Um, and, you know, there are a variety of states that, that even if they're not great at everything, and probably no one is great at everything, there may be some good points you can learn. And we, we set these benchmarks for minimum standards in the yearbook. There are 10 of them. I won't go through them. Uh, they're easy to look up at nieer.org <laughs> to get the yearbook. But the, the point of benchmarks uh, is to look at what is the best that's been done out there, including from practice in other countries and states uh, and from research, and then say, well, what are the characteristics of those who have succeeded? And California can do its own benchmarking to say, well, you know, if we look at other states, what do we think are the best practices from each of them? And let's benchmark ourselves against those. Um, so, and uh, other states are always willing to help. Um, 
I know our Department of Education was asked by um, Bermuda if they could adopt our early childhood standards. And it turns out what they meant by that is they simply took our entire program off the web and made it theirs. <laughs> Why recreate the wheel was their point of view. We like this, we came and see it, we came and saw it. it uh, so uh, I think that's a great way to, to, to learn. Um, beyond that, I think starting by setting high standards or high expectations. Sometimes I think standards gets us off on the wrong foot. And if we call them expectations, uh, that sounds more reasonable uh, and less constraining to people. But setting high standards for what it is that you want children to learn and be able to do as a result of the program, and then high standards for what you want teachers to know and be able to do in order to make that happen. And then really everything else flows from there. What resources do schools and teachers need to support students and teachers in making that happen? Um, what um, kind of intensity, quality, and duration do you need to make that happen? And I think that's important because too often people have a, an underappreciation of the capabilities of young children and an underappreciation of just what a um, what their requirements are for high quality. People think it's easy and simple and too often they fall into the habit of talking about it. Well, they learn their ABCs and their numbers. Well, they, you couldn't have picked two more less important things to focus on. Uh, not, not because they don't matter, but because those, those are easily acquired skills in a few weeks. Um, they're not deep domains of lifelong learning. Uh, which is not to say that language literacy and math aren't deep domains, but the way they get framed too often neglects the, the view uh, and understanding of the, both the, the capabilities and the, the needs uh, of young children in early education. Well, Dr. Barnett, thank you so much for those, those insights. And I uh, particularly appreciate um, your assessment of young children and the remarkable capacity that they have um, to learn and grow during this, this time period. Um, I think the concept of, of high standards and expectation um, is something that's paramount. And I'm wondering, can you point to an example uh, of another state that has really uh, leveraged as part of their statewide initiative uh, the implementation, I should say, the setting and implementation of high expectations? I, I like the way you put that because um, virtually all the states have great standards uh, for e either the expectations for children or teachers or both. Um, the real issue comes into the what do you do to support that? 
And, and I'll give an example from, um, again, from my own state of New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey really convened experts from higher education, from um, practice, from preschool programs and schools, together from around the state to develop the expectations. Mm -hmm. Once the expectations were developed, then the state developed program standards for that, that essentially support it. So what are the qualifications that teachers need? We created a 15 credit early childhood certification. We didn't have one, but the, the credits were created to, to, in a way to support teachers having the knowledge and skills required to meet the expectations. So is addressed on the pre-service side. And of course, along with that goes adequate compensation of teachers. Um, but then the state also developed a set of tools for teachers for self-assessment. So how do I know if I'm doing this and how well I'm doing it? Well, so there's a tool for self-assessment that teachers can use to see how well they're doing. There are then tools for assessing children, not high stakes tools, but, but tools for assessing how well the students are doing in acquiring the skills, knowledge, dispositions, habits that, that are in the expectations. Then there's another set of aligned tools for coaches to use. Um, because so often, if I'm not doing this well, it's not because I'm not trying. It's because I don't know the difference between what I'm doing and what a, a high level of performance that this is. I think I'm doing it right. If, if I don't have anyone who comes into my classroom and gives me feedback, whether it's a supervisor or a coach, um, then how will, I, how will I ever figure that out? And sometimes you can figure it out on your own, but, but other times you can't. That's why even the best professional athletes have coaches because you need that external feedback. It's not a shortcoming, right? The best experts in the world have coaches. Um, and um, then the next level up, every district have a, a self-assessment system that's similarly aligned. So they're collecting data, not on all students, but on samples of students to see how they're doing in a few domains. They're collecting data on the classroom quality to see how that's going. At some points, we even collected data on the coaches to make sure coaches were actually coaching and <laughs> doing other things. Um, and so, the district goes through the same process and state then has a role in supporting districts and validating their self-assessments and giving them external feedback. So this whole system is aligned all the way from the level of the individual teacher all the way up to the state in a continuous improvement process that, that I often liken to, to a GPS. This is very... People sometimes think this is just another word for an accountability system or a monitoring system or compliance. It's completely different, right? 
and, and that I use the GPS analogy because I think the GPS does a couple of important things. First, we quit arguing about who got us lost. This isn't about fault. What it is about is about figuring out where we are and getting step-by-step -step directions to where we need to go. That's what a GPS does. That's what a continuous improvement system does. There are not sanctions. There are, there are not rewards other than getting to your goal. Um, but, but there is feedback. And, and that's, I, I think, a different approach to continuous improvement. And part of what I meant by um, learning fast and changing slowly. Thank you for that, Dr. Barnett. And I think those are some very um, important characteristics for all of us in California to consider as we look at building this system and this structure that will uh, not only provide opportunities for children, but really look at how we invest in those individuals that are working with our children on a daily basis to bolster them, to support them so that they can really refine the art the skill of being effective teachers for, for very young children. And I think the, uh, the element of continuous improvement is um, something that if we can embrace as we implement universal TK, we'll have some important beneficial implications for our, for our children. So, so thank you. Uh, you started to touch upon the importance of the local level as well, and sort of that relationship between the state and the local level. And I wanted to now move on and get your perspectives about what uh, schools, elementary schools, that have thus far served primarily children ages five and older. From, from your perspective, uh, what do schools need to do to make their campuses effective places for educating four-year-old children? Uh, you know, it is many of the same things that I already talked about, right? So the, the school needs to have a set of expectations that guides everything else. Um, in order to make that work, the schools have to develop the collective capacity to implement. And part of that is generating tools, right? So what are, what are the supports? What are the self-assessments or other kinds of tools that I can use to help support my practice to plan with other teachers about how we do this? It's not an individual teacher task, mm -hmm. right? It, it's a school-wide task uh, that collectively you work on together. And thinking about it as the leading edge of, of school reform. If we're going to provide a, a, a new start to education that gets children off into a, a much greater level of success, what do we have to do to make that happen? What are the supports that teachers need? What's the professional development? What's the curriculum? How does it get developed? How do we get supported in it? Uh, how are we going to assess ourselves? All of that, but then also looking downward, what, what do we need to be doing to address the pipeline into our program? 
and looking upward, well, how do we need to change kindergarten and first grade and third grade and all the way on up to maybe algebra needs eventually to be offered a year earlier because our students are, are going to be hitting, uh, hitting their stride in, in a way that prepares them for that maybe a year earlier than they otherwise would have been ready. And so thinking about scope and sequence, not just within the four-year-old year, but across the, the grades, I think is important. Um, and then beyond that, thinking about, well, what does this mean for preschool special education and inclusion? How do we, how might we reform what we do there as, as we have universal preschool? Um, is this also an opportunity to improve what we do for dual language learners, right? So the beginning a year earlier, we're, we're gonna have a stronger basis for creating strong foundations in more than one language. How do we do that? It can be very complicated if um, you have a very diverse population with respect to languages. If it's mostly, if it's hugely dominated by English and Spanish, that's relatively easy. If you've got five or six languages that are pretty common, that becomes harder. Uh, but then thinking about how do we sustain children's capabilities in academic language as they move up through the years, building on a strong base we created when they're four, maybe with dual language immersion program. Um, so thinking beyond, you know, more expansively about what are the opportunities, I, I think is part of it. Sure, uh, I think you really underscored the opportunity for examining alignment um, that Universal TK really um, offers us. And in particular, I, I particularly appreciate uh, looking even beyond the elementary grade span, but really thinking about what are those implications as we look at secondary education? Because I think, for example, the idea of, are we looking at potentially resequencing or looking at possible alternatives to how we have placed children in courses um, such that that might impact over time, some of that fade out that we've seen in terms of investments in early education that perhaps some greater uh, examination of alignment really might help to leverage preschool as an opportunity to really put children on a trajectory um, for really uh, optimizing achievement. So thank you for that perspective, as well as one of the things I took note of is collective capacity to implement. I think that's really gonna be critical. Certainly as I sit in a school district, where we have uh, historically had a state preschool program for 30 plus years, um, but have not served four-year-olds uh, universally in our elementary schools. That phrase, collective capacity to implement, really makes me consider what are those investments that we need to make in each one of those elementary schools in our school district to make certain that we all have the resources, the tools, the skills that we need to really optimize our, our implementation. So, so thank you for that. You know, I wanted to now move on. We've talked a bit about universal TK implementation at the state, 
then looking more at a local level, I really wanted to examine the classroom level now. And I know that your, your previous work has really examined the relative effectiveness of different instructional and programmatic approaches to early education. And what has your research really indicated are the most important elements of effective instruction in early education classrooms and what advice would you offer a TK teacher about making an impact on the long-term educational trajectory of their students? And that's a great question because it really is about focusing on the long-term learning and development of the child and their well-being. Uh, and I think where that leads us is to focus on the deep domains. So language, it, it's, this is a, a bottomless pool. You, your language can develop over a lifetime. You, you, you're never finished with, I know all the words. I know all the nuances of their uses and the possible combinations. Uh, it's, it's not like learning letters. <laughs> uh, mathematics, if you think about it broadly, is the same way. Also, social-emotional development, right? understanding yourself and understanding others. These are lifetime challenges. And, and uh, it, within that, self-regulation, uh, emotional self-regulation, but, but also self-regulation in the sense of being able to, to pay, uh, to sustain attention to something that somebody else, often the teacher, wants you to focus on. We all know young children have a great capacity for focusing on the things that interest them. But learning how to focus on something that might not interest me at the particular moment, um, that's an that's a important skill. Uh, we talked a lot about continuous improvement. That's plan, do, review in a more elaborated way. Plan, do, review is an important skill for young children. Learning to think before they act, to make plans for the future, to review their plans and consider what went right, what went wrong, what can I do about it. I think too often people don't think about how capable young children can be in those activities and, and how you can set them off on a, a lifetime path uh, of greater success in so many different areas if they've developed those skills. And so that's about the content. Then, then there's the question of how. And, and I think the, you know, the field debates continually, the play versus academics, and, and I think that's a false dichotomy. Um, just the way I think there's a false dichotomy between direct instruction and, and child-initiated activity. It's the, the question is, what's the right approach for, for each child and each aspect of learning? And what's the right mix? We want children to have lots of opportunities to be creative, to explore, to play, to have fun, to encounter problems, whether they're social problems or academic problems, and learn how to solve them with support, but also with some independence. 
but we also don't want children to struggle with things that we could have explained to them simply. I, I think about when I learned, you know, uh, uh, I, you know we're, we're really bad in the United States, uh, hopefully not as bad as they were when I was a student uh, in secondary school at foreign language instruction. But I was in my fourth year of French before I understood there were rules. You know, no one ever bothered to explain to me the rules. It's like, wait, I don't have to memorize all this? There's a logic to French and how it works? Why did no one ever tell me? I was supposed to discover this? This doesn't make sense, right? Um, so, so finding that right balance and understanding, um, and, and I don't know that there's a, you know, a magic to one particular curriculum that anybody has this just exactly right the one way there may be multiple, you know, it seems likely to me there are multiple paths that work well. Um, they work well for different things, of course. What, what you teach, you know, your, the emphasis of, of your program and learning and teaching will affect the extent to which children are, have opportunities in different areas. If you don't have dual language instruction, children are not going to develop dual language competency. And, and when I say instruction, I don't mean didactic. But if they're not, if they don't have the opportunities to learn and use more than one language, then they're not going to make much progress, at least in the academic language. Um, and the same is true in mathematics, right? I, I can think of at least one state we worked in where Students were making great progress in language and literacy, but not so much in math. And when we looked at what teachers were doing, they weren't doing very much. There wasn't a lot of math engagement in the classroom. Well, then you know, children aren't going to learn it. If, if you don't have a, a plan, sustained um, set of activities in, in which you engage them, whether that's in, you know, how there are a variety of different ways of doing that. I think the other aspect of that is, is really to understand that that one-on-one -on -one interaction and, and tutoring is the most obvious example of that. We, we've known since the 1960s, this is the most important. This is the most powerful approach to learning and teaching. It's, there's nothing that's more individualized when done right. And that individualization to figure out what is it that this child needs to learn for this particular aspect of learning at this particular time. Right? But you have to be that inside the child's mind to understand you're not teaching a class, you're teaching children, you need to understand where each individual child is, what's going on in their minds, what, what is it they're struggling with, what is it they already understand and you don't want to waste their time. Um, and, and so while you're not literally tutoring children, I think that for me, as a non-early as, as non childhood educator, as an economist, that helps me grasp the, the principle of the approach, which is to maximize the individualized one-on-one -on -one attention 
that each child receives. And of course, that goes to how do we work in small groups? How do we make sure that class sizes are small enough that there's not a one size fits all? Different children need different things. And, and that may mean that classrooms that have high concentrations of children in poverty, classrooms with higher concentrations of special needs children may need to be smaller than other classrooms, right? That it's not just, they're all going to be 20 or they're all going to be 15. Um, that, that, so it's, it's, if we think about it, this, you know, there are things that support this beyond the curriculum, uh, including the, the teacher's initial preparation and ongoing professional development and support and their ability to work with each other and again, develop that collective capacity. Sure. Well, I, uh, a couple of things that really resonate in terms of considering, you know, as a, as a practitioner, what can I share with those TK teachers in, in the classroom? I, I think the uh, concept of individualization and personal connection being paramount is something that's so important and absolutely an area where I think alignment in respect to how we perceive our role as educators can have implications for kindergarten, first grade and onward mm -hmm. um, in a profound way. Because one of the things I think is, is very striking is that uh, now we're seeing this shift in this transition for incorporating younger children, different developmental stages in our elementary schools. But there's always been this bit of a disconnect as a practitioner that I've seen where we have this concept of how uh, human beings learn when they are three and four years old. And then when they enter kindergarten, that that somehow must change because now we have larger classrooms with more abstract information and, and sometimes less personalization. So I think what you've highlighted in terms of individualization, finding the right balance between direct instruction, child initiated learning, and really embracing a sense of exploration and joy and wonder all of those things are elements that I, I believe we can incorporate into our, our TK programs across California and that can hopefully have some impact on our overall K-12 system, I should say TK-12 system in terms of how we support all of our learners. And isn't that an exciting vision for an opportunity? It absolutely is. I wanna be in those classrooms. <laughs> <laughs> well. Dr. Barnett, thank you so much today for sharing your, your insights, your expertise. Thank you for your contributions to the field over the course of your career. It's been an absolute pleasure. For me as well. Thanks, Roberta. Thank you for joining Follow the Buzz, a production of the Center for District Innovation and Leadership in Early Education. Subscribe to our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or visit us at www.dalee.org.